What do we do when we wake? What do we do? What do we... What do we do when we sleep? Welcome to Verbal Diorama, episode 201, Reign of Fire. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And as always, a huge hi, welcome and welcome back to Verbal Diorama. Whether you're a brand new listener to this podcast, whether you are a regular returning listener or an irregular returning listener to this podcast, thank you for being here. Thank you for choosing to listen to this podcast. Out of all of the other podcasts you could be listening to right now, you chose to listen to Verbal Diorama and obviously, I'm delighted, should obviously listen to other podcasts too. You should definitely keep your scope of podcasts open. I can recommend plenty of podcasts to you if you should want another podcast to listen to. I have a lot of podcast friends who also produce excellent podcasts. But for now, I'm happy to have you here for the history and legacy of Reign of Fire. And this is a movie that I've wanted to cover for actually quite a while. and. It just so happened that when I was looking this year at doing animation season and then obviously going into the 200th episode, which was the last one, I was like, well, Red Fire's got to be 201, surely. Like, it makes total sense. This is obviously the fifth year of this podcast, the second century of this podcast. And there have been so many momentous occasions for this podcast in the last couple of months, really. And I just want to extend again a huge thanks to everyone for the really lovely comments that I got last episode, the 200th episode on The Wizard of Oz. And it was always going to be The Wizard of Oz. Nothing else was ever considered for the 200th episode. And it's such a special landmark movie, truly timeless. And the comments that I've had for that episode have just been beyond wonderful. Like, the people who listen to this podcast are genuinely some of the nicest, kindest, loveliest people in the world. And I consider myself very fortunate. I don't get very many negative comments about this podcast, which I think generally on the internet today, that's definitely something that doesn't happen very often for a lot of people. But I consider myself quite fortunate that I don't really get very many negative comments. Obviously, I get constructive criticism, and that's absolutely fine, and I welcome it. But overall... The feedback has just been so overwhelmingly positive, especially for The Wizard of Oz. And I'm just delighted. I've got to be honest, because there's always episodes of this podcast that I tend to kind of hold back on or that I don't want to do just now because of reasons. It generally tends to be those really huge movies and huge franchises that you'll notice if you look through the back catalogue of Verbal Diorama that there's not very much in the way of these huge franchises like... Back to the Future, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Star Wars. 
apart from Rogue One. And that generally is because it's so daunting to take on mammoth movies like those. And The Wizard of Oz is genuinely such a mammoth movie to take on. And I really genuinely hope that I did it justice. But the feedback was so positive And yeah, I'm very happy with the feedback. And also for Wayne's World as well, which was episode 199. The feedback I got on that was interesting because there had three endings to that podcast. And one of which spooked a few of you. And I got comments about the particular ending. <laughs> and I'm really sorry that I, uh, that I worried quite a lot of people with that particular ending. And I guess my acting skills are better than I thought because I did convince a few of you that I was actually being genuine with that ending. But as in Wayne's World, there were three endings. So it wasn't the true ending of the podcast. But um, yeah, I am sorry if you were spooked by that particular sad ending of the podcast. And so we come to dragons. And what amazing dragons these are. These truly are some of the most fantastic dragons that you will ever see. In a movie that is 21 years old, by the way, these dragons still look absolutely terrific in this movie. And there's a really, really special reason why these dragons look as good as they do. The reason boils down to this. The dragons were built on top of Dalmatians. And the Dalmatians were built on top of dinosaurs. But not the Spielbergian dinosaurs that you're probably thinking of. So let's go into the story. And here's the trailer for Reign of Fire. creature has been awakened that has lain dormant for millions of years. A species older than the dinosaurs and more terrifying than anything we could have imagined. How did they go from one to a million in less than a year? Highly evolved. They have great vision in the day. They have even better vision at night. Extremely intelligent. He's playing hunting. More like cat and mouse. Unbelievably powerful. Two glands in the mouth secrete separate chemicals. Combine an exhalation, natural napalm. Good luck. Now one will protect them. We have to hang on. Work together. And one will lead them. There's nothing magical about it. They're made of flesh and blood. You take out their heart, you bring down the beast. We found out where they started. We're going to London. This summer, vertical one up. The plan is set. 1,600 yards, closing fast. The arsenal has been assembled. Get ready to rock and roll. Each other! And they've got one chance to take back McConaughey, Christian Bale, Reign of Fire. In 2020, the planet has been devastated by vicious, fire-breathing dragons. The last vestiges of humanity now struggle for survival at remote outposts. In Ruin Castle in the English countryside, Quinn Abercrombie is desperately trying to hold together a band of frightened, restless survivors. As a boy, Quinn watched his mother die protecting him from one of the beasts and is still haunted by the memory. 
One day, a group of American rogues show up, led by brash, tough guy Denton Van Zandt. He claims to have discovered a way to kill the dragons once and for all and enlists Quinn's help to kill the large, ferocious, soul male dragon. Let's run through the cast of this movie. We have Christian Bale as Quinn Abercrombie, Matthew McConaughey as Denton Van Zandt, Isabella Skorupko as Alex Jensen, Gerard Butler as Creedy, Scott Muta as Jared Wilkie, David Kennedy as Eddie Stacks, Alexander Siddick as AJ, Ned Dennehy as Barlow, and Roy Keenan as Devon. Rain of Fire has a screenplay by Greg Shabot, Kevin Peterker and Matt Greenberg, a story by Greg Shabot and Kevin Peterker, and was directed by Rob Bowman. And there are more dragons in cinema history than you might think, but it also goes back farther than you might think. While nowadays dragons seem almost commonplace in fantasy, think Game of Thrones, House of the Dragon, Harry Potter and The Hobbit, as the big high-profile examples, dragons in their various forms have existed in cinema since the 1920s. The first instance of a live-action dragon was in the two-part 1924 silent fantasy film Die Nibelungen, based on the epic poem Nibelungenlied, written around AD 1200. The dragon Fafnir of Germanic legend and myth is encountered by the protagonist Siegfried in the first part and he decides to slay it and gains power from bathing in its hot yellow blood, becoming invincible. This particular dragon was an impressive full-scale 60-foot long puppet. And in a did-you-know-because-I-certainly-didn't moment, there are several very distinct types of dragons. So, for the sake of dragon lore, let's just go through them. So you have European dragons, they are four-legged and winged, and they are common in films involving dragons being slain or ridden. The drake is four-legged, not winged, commonly possessing a short body, and that is frequent in 20th century animation, and that's because wing animation tended to be quite difficult. Asian dragons are four-legged, not winged, because it's a long body, and they are often found in anime or Western animation with East Asian themes. The wyvern, two-legged and winged, and their popularity increased in the 21st century with the rise of live-action CGI, but the difficulty in animating classical six-limbed European dragons still remained. The serpentine has no legs or wings, but frequently appears in animation, something like a lake monster. The amphithere has no legs but possesses wings. And there's two further categories. There's alien category, which is tends to be like aliens, I guess. Dragons that look like aliens that tend to appear in sci-fi. And other, which is a dragon that has a shape not conforming to any of the above categorizations. So the dragons in Reign of Fire are therefore classed as wyvern, two-legged and winged. Going into the 80s and 90s, the two most famous dragons in cinema were probably Vermithrax Pejorative from 1981's Dragon Slayer, with its dragon effects done by Phil Tippett and Industrial Light and Magic. The effects in Dragon Slayer cost 25% of the budget of that movie and included a 40-foot hydraulic dragon puppet, as well as 16 smaller puppets for flying, crawling or fire-breathing. And this would land it with the Best Visual Effects Academy Award nomination. Now, I have not seen Dragon Slayer but I really want to see it. And Rob Bowman would credit Dragon Slayer as, quote, the one to beat, unquote, in regards to the design of the dragons in Reign of Fire, but more on that in a bit. The next most famous would be Draco from 1996's Dragonheart, voiced, of course, by Sean Connery, and the various sequel dragons from the various sequels to Dragonheart. There's a lot of sequels to Dragonheart. Also nominated with the Best Visual Effects Academy Award, 
and unlike Dragon Slayer, a box office success, Dragonheart was changed significantly following the huge success of Jurassic Park and CG dinosaurs, and a practical dragon model turned into a CG dragon. And again, Phil Tippett and Industrial Light and Magic were brought on board for this. Both Dragon Slayer and Dragonheart are considered cult classics, and coincidentally, so is Reign of Fire. The story of Reign of Fire started back in the 90s, actually in 1996, the same year Dragonheart was released. Writing partners Greg Shabbat and Kevin Peterker conceived a post-apocalyptic story of the last remnants of humanity taking on terrifying dragons. The script was called Reign of Fire, and they had several scripts that they sold over the years, including one called The Ghosts of October, in which Civil War criminals seek stolen Confederate gold during the Great Chicago Fire of 1871, In a Dark Wood, which is the tale of Robin Hood from the perspective of the Sheriff of Nottingham, which, from my memory, I'm kind of thinking that maybe that started to go through the studio system because I do remember stories about a movie of Robin Hood from the perspective of the sheriff, but I don't know if that ever actually got made. And finally, Galileo's Wake, which was an Armageddon-style rescue adventure with the passengers of a space shuttle that have crashed on a comet being rescuing. But to be honest, I looked on Google for examples of these scripts and I couldn't find absolutely anything. So the first draft of Reign of Fire would be acquired by Spyglass Pictures, and while it would evolve, eventually bringing Matt Greenberg on board for rewrites, it would fundamentally stay as planned. So these wouldn't be friendly dragons like in Dragonheart. These would be skilled hunters, fast, deadly. Humans wouldn't stand a chance against their power, very much in the mould of Jurassic Park's dinosaurs. But Jurassic Park had the budget to be able to deliver on its premise of these huge prehistoric creatures. Reign of Fire did not. The original script proved to be too expensive to bring to the screen. Major modifications were needed. Most of these changes were pre-production, but some happened even after production started. And in charge of this production was director Rob Bowman, previously known for his work on TV shows like The X-Files and Star Trek The Next Generation. He was inspired to become a filmmaker after seeing, well, of course, The Wizard of Oz and being inspired by his father, Chuck Bowman, a director of TV like The A-Team, MacGyver, Murder, She Wrote, and Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman. Bowman had little experience on big-budget movies, his biggest being the 1998 X-Files movie, which rather amazingly cost $6 million more to produce than Reign of Fire would. Hollywood producer Richard D. Zanuck had grown up in the show business circuit. His father was Daryl F. Zanuck, head of production for 20th Century Fox. Richard D. Zanuck began his career at Fox in the story department before becoming president of the studio in the 1960s. He would end up being dismissed from Fox by his own father after a string of flops. He set up the Zanuck Brown Independent Production Company in 1972 and went on to produce the Sugarland Express and Jaws. Yep, that Jaws. More hits like Cocoon and Driving Miss Daisy followed before the partnership was dissolved in 1988. During this time, though, he married his third wife, Lily Finney, who would co-produce many of his films, including Cocoon, Driving Miss Daisy and Reign of Fire. So when Shabbat and Peterka's script arrived at his desk, Zanet immediately saw what many didn't. While other producers would be interested in previous work or an IP or a precedent in Hollywood for the idea, Zanet saw a mix of medieval and military, dragons and dystopia. From the first pitch, Zanuck was on board and Matthew Greenberg was hired to rewrite the script to take the original estimate of $300 million down to something a bit more manageable for the studio to work with. This huge estimated cost meant the project bounced around from Spyglass to Fox to Touchstone and Disney, 
where the stripped-down version would get the green light. This was down to Greenberg grounding the story in reality and ensuring the dragons would be fairly limited on screen, but when they did appear, they'd appear spectacularly. This would bring the $300 million estimated budget down to around the $60 million mark, and undoubtedly the low budget was helped by hiring then-known but not particularly famous actors. Actors like Isabella Skorupko, she'd had her big break in GoldenEye in 1995, then had left the industry to raise her daughter, so she was known but not known. Gerard Butler, coincidentally one of his first roles, had also been in a Bond movie in Tomorrow Never Dies. His biggest profile roles so far had been in Dracula 2000. Christian Bale had been a child star in Empire of the Sun and Newsies and had transitioned to adult big screen roles in American Psycho and Captain Corelli's Mandolin. And Matthew McConaughey had been in A Time to Kill, Contact, starred in Ed TV, that movie that was just like The Truman Show, and then had started his reign in romantic comedies with The Wedding Planner alongside Jennifer Lopez. But none were known for the action movie roles that would define their careers going forward. This was pre-300 Gerard Butler. This was pre-Batman Christian Bale. And pre-How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days Matthew McConaughey. A jest, of course. Pre-reconnaissance Matthew McConaughey. There are two Academy Award winners in this movie and people genuinely sleep on it. I have no idea why. And Matthew McConaughey specifically really gave this movie everything. It was the character of Denton Van Zandt's, quote, primal nature, unquote, that drew McConaughey to him. He's gone on record to say that it's one of the movies he's enjoyed filming the most. I believe he said the experience was, all right, all right, all right, but I've not read his memoir, so I can't be 100% on that. The producers originally asked Rob Bowman to consider casting Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger as Van Zandt and Quinn. But he didn't want huge stars with even bigger screen presences dwarfing the dragons, because only Stallone and Schwarzenegger possibly could do that. Instead, Bowman's pick for Quinn was Christian Bale, a strong, soulful actor who could sell the small interactions, especially with the children in the cast. He could show leadership as well as vulnerability. But the first person Bowman had to convince wasn't the producers, but Bale himself, who questioned the authenticity and realism of the script, when the two men eventually met in Berlin. Bowman promised Bale the finished film would be grounded in ultra-realism. Bowman had it easier with Gerard Butler, who we met at Disney. The two men just hit it off immediately. And Butler didn't need to be sold on the film or the premise. He was just on board with this huge, brilliant dragon movie. After getting a tax exemption in Ireland, 90 days of primary photography in the Wicklow Mountains at the main mine site at Glendasan Valley would occur with Bale, Butler and McConaughey all on board. The crew was given permission under the condition that no damage be done to the area and that all sets be taken down after filming was over. Nevertheless, due to quarantine requirements brought on by an outbreak of foot and mouth disease in Europe, several planned scenes were unable to be filmed. Despite there being 30,000 castles in Ireland, the castle in Reign of Fire was built from scratch. And the fact that a blackened soot wasteland was being filmed in one of the most beautiful lush green countries on Earth made the shoot nothing like easy or normal, because Ireland is not called the Emerald Isle for no reason. So filming occurred in Ireland between February and July 2001, and McConaughey, famous for his method acting on the set of this movie, method acting that would actually start in pre-production. He would call Rob Bowman not as Matthew McConaughey, but as Denton Van Zandt. He told Bowman he wasn't allowed to make Rain of Fire without him, and committed, fully committed. On set, everyone had to call him Van Zandt, and he personally chose Polynesian-inspired dragon tattoos 
and would spend extra time in the makeup chair every day to have them applied. But I know you're not really here for me to talk about the actors filming in Ireland. I know why you're here. Because it's why we're all here. Because we're all here for the dragons. And the major changes to get this screenplay down to a $60 million movie meant fewer dragons than originally conceived. And there were other problems too, including the threat of a potential writer strike, which not only cut short pre-production stage, but also had a big impact on creature design. The design team tackled the designs on three fronts concurrently, as opposed to the customary sequence from conceptual design to maquettes to completed models. Outside storyboard artists were brought in, as well as physical sculptors working with clay. At the same time, digital sculptors were also working on models. Time was incredibly limited on this production, so everyone worked together, borrowing design ideas from each other to produce extensive concept art for these dragons. Because of the time limitations, it was questioned whether they needed to make physical models, but in the end, it was agreed that they should. Once the model was approved, it was scanned digitally and the CG models were manipulated to match it. This unusual and intensive design process lasted a total of nine months, encompassing the whole of pre-production as well as two months of production. The ultimate idea was to come up with something inspired by previous cinematic dragons, but that was unlike anything anyone had ever seen in a movie before. The primary visual effects for Reign of Fire were done by the Secret Lab. The Secret Lab had been previously known as Dream Quest Images. They'd done early work on Escape from New York and E.T., earning back-to-back -back visual effects Oscars for their work on The Abyss and Total Recall. These guys knew visual effects. In 1996, Dream Quest was bought by Disney, and Disney folded the company into Walt Disney Feature Animation, renaming it The Secret Lab in 1999. The Secret Lab did the visuals for Disney's Dinosaur, which I've still not seen, and then started work on Wildlife, a project that would ultimately be cancelled by Disney. Now, DreamQuest slash The Secret Lab, they worked on quite a lot of stuff in the 90s, including Robin Hood Men in Tights, shout out to one of the most popular episodes of this podcast ever. They also worked on The Mask, Waterworld, The Rock, Con Air, Armageddon, the list goes on. Reign of Fire would be the penultimate film The Secret Lab worked on before their doors closed for good in 2001. And it's a real shame because the visual work in Reign of Fire, the mix of practical and CG dragons, still looks terrific and it really does hold up. And the reason why I think the effects hold up in this movie is there was genuine, brilliant thought that went into not only the design of these dragons, but also the way that these dragons moved and behaved. Original concept work was done by H.R. Geiger, the same H.R. Geiger who designed the original alien creature in Alien. And these designs were discarded after his partner and manager found the project to have a weak script. So what they did instead was they decided to go for a very in-depth investigation of mythical dragons in many different civilizations and cultures. Rob Bowman was startled to discover how many countries had their own dragon histories and mythologies when he started investigating what dragons meant to various cultures. They studied countless comic books as well as Chinese and ancient legendary illustrations. Although many of these dragons exhibited humanoid traits, the goal was to create dragons that resembled animals that could exist right now on Earth. Dan DeLieu, one of the visual effects supervisors, became the creature specialist in the crew and wanted them to look like they had actually evolved with natural selection, just like real animal species. These dragons had wiped out the dinosaurs, and so they were meant to be lean, strong, and practically invincible. The anatomy of the dragons, from the skeleton to the skin textures, was established using references from a variety of contemporary and extinct animal species. 
Given the creature's mysterious prehistoric origin, a paleontologist was also consulted, but the creators did not want them to be too similar to the Mesozoic reptiles. They didn't want it to resemble a dinosaur, for example. Other discarded ideas included a long neck, reptilian traits, a snake-like forked tongue, and burying rows of teeth like a shark. So all of these design ideas were eventually removed. Art director Miles Tevez confirmed the look was inspired by Vermithrax from Dragonslayer, but they didn't want the, quote, snake with chicken legs body, unquote. The front legs would be part of the wings with the structure of the wings based on the wings of a bat. The skeletal structure and scales of the dragons were modelled after crocodiles, lizards and snakes. The animators were able to concentrate on the actual performance while still creating delicate and realistic muscular movements because of the underpinnings of advanced digital muscle systems. And this held true for the digital skin as well, which behaved realistically when the figure moved by stretching and contracting. The effects team needed to discover a method to change displacement maps because they didn't want the skin of the monsters to have a leathery appearance. The skin between the scales should extend, but not the scales themselves. And this issue was solved by the secret lab re-engineering a hair renderer program formerly used for 102 Dalmatians to render scales rather than fur. The initial test involved animating some dogs with scales. They initially intended to make the skin resemble a snake's, but since snake scales are shiny, the dragon ended up looking like a plastic toy, and the herringbone pattern blew the scales off the dragon. So they borrowed alligator and crocodile pelts and took pictures of various scales. For instance, the scales among the arm where the animal had to bend tended to be softer than the back's armoured scales. They incorporated those references into the dragon, and thousands of distinct digital scales that could overlap and interact realistically covered the surface of the dragon's skin. To add character and history, the dragon's large wing membranes were given scars and tears as a finishing touch. According to Deleuze's theory, the dragons had bite marks, numerous holes and damage to the wings because they were always fighting other dragons or humans. And this would make them appear more threatening as basically the more scars the dragon had, the more ferocious the dragon was. To represent differences between the sexes in the creatures, different digital models with minute variations were made. The conceived length of the female dragons was 160 feet, with the wingspan of 240 feet. The first dragon to emerge long ago from the underground cave was the bull male, 180 feet long and a gigantic wingspan of 320 feet. In the early drafts, the sole dragon's gender was female, a dragon queen, for all intents and purposes, with the other dragons being drone males, which is evident in nature when you have one single queen and an army of males protecting her. When the decision was made to display a dragon egg in the movie during various screenplay revisions, the sexes were switched because the scene the egg appeared in came before the confrontation with the dragon hierarch and before the climax. So the queen became a king and the other dragons were changed to female dragons. And one of the major ramifications of Reign of Fire is not just the look of the dragons, which like I say, this movie is 21 years old and it still looks terrific, but also the dragon fire itself. Like the design of the dragons, real animals were used as inspiration for the way the dragons breathe fire. Rob Bowman was watching National Geographic one day and they were showing a cobra spitting venom. Another inspiration was the bombardier beetle. They also possessed the same defence mechanism. The beetle sprays a chemical out of its rear and makes sparks to ignite the stream. The designers on Reign of Fire proposed that the dragon's neck had two glands that produced chemicals. The two streams spontaneously burst into flames as they cross in front of the dragon. The dragons will pull back, thrust their heads aggressively forward before actually spearing fire. This behaviour was modelled after that of the spitting cobras. 
It's also why the dragons appear to drool. It's a constant stream of liquid that hasn't naturally combusted with the other chemical. The volatile blue liquid used to create the saliva came from a remote controlled device managed by John Gray of Realistic Effects, who also worked on the actual fire. The fiery slobbering effect was produced by shooting these physical components individually and then tracking them on the digital dragon. And as I'm going to keep coming to, the CG in this movie is 21 years old, but much of the work on and around the dragons is actually practical effects or a mix of CG and practical, which honestly is probably why this movie does hold up as well as it does visually. Most of the images included digital fire insertions, while certain scenes featured massive flamethrowers that could shoot fire streams up to 110 feet long. It was based on two, three or four fire hose nozzles mounted on a massive tractor and spaced exactly the width apart from the dragon's head. A huge amount of pressure was used to force the propane out, which ignited it. No one could stand closer than 150 feet away from the flame because it would rocket over 100 foot in the air. On one occasion, the electrical cable that was buried a foot deep in the mud had its insulation burned off because it was that hot. The digital fire that's used in the movie was created using the Secret Lab's fluid dynamics engine, using the real-world fire from the set as a guide. To direct the fire, the animators would move the two cones on either side of the dragon's mouth. They studied the progression of the fire from its initial ignition and intense burning to its eventual cooling and incorporated that knowledge into their fire renderer. A fire genuinely does go through stages from being extremely hot to beginning to calm down and gaining more detail until it finally transforms into smoke. They then switch from the fire shader to the smoke shader to show realistic looking smoke surrounding the flames. And not only were real life animals used for the look of the dragons, they were also used for the dragon movements as well. And when we're talking movements, we're talking flying and walking. And also, I'm not making this up, legendary actor Bela Lugosi was also used as reference for the movements for the dragons. Predatory birds were used for how the dragons would attack midair. Birds like hawks and eagles and their wing movements. Footage of crocodiles, iguanas, komodo dragons, vultures and other reptiles and birds, as well as lions, tigers and leopards were used as a reference for the ground movement. And it was important again that once grounded, the dragons didn't mimic dinosaur movement to keep the two creatures and the potential film franchises, lol, separate. Snakes were used for neck movement and a leopard for the back leg movement. The front legs, which literally were winged with huge wings, were similar to vulture movements. Rob Dressel, the creature supervisor, came up with a dynamic wing membrane system that was incorporated into the original existing digital skin and muscle system. The animators were able to concentrate on the bigger wing movements thanks to this workaround, which relieved them of having to manually animate every single wing dynamic. And specific to Lugosi, he was referenced as his take on Dracula walks on all fours. From that, they made a walk cycle where the dragon draws its arms and wings across its body, giving it a shrouded, mysterious look. A practical model was also used to portray the dragon slain by Van Zandt. This was built by London-based Artem, and this was the biggest project they'd ever done at that point. A group of sculptors started out by working with a sculpture of the dead creature made by Miles Tevez and blew it up to full size. It took 10 weeks to complete the enormous sculpture and to make sure the model would faithfully represent the digital dragons. They scanned the maquette and produced cut-through sliced data. It was built of clay with a multi-piece fiberglass mould and two-part rubber that was reinforced with sturdy fabric. It was painted using emulsion-style paints, some of which had latex in them. A wood stain was utilised to create the semi-translucent areas on the wing. 
Some of the acrylic teeth could be removed, and in a deleted scene, Van Zandt pulled one of the teeth from the dragon's mouth. With the exception of its left wing and tail, which were added digitally to the dragon during post-production, the model accurately depicted the whole body of the creature. The task of transporting the full-sized monster from West London to the set in Ireland was made easier by the fact it was built to fold up for easy transport. Because the dragon is still alive after being mortally wounded, puppeteers worked within the body, producing saliva from the mouth, providing tiny tongue and gland action. The monster's dying breaths were replicated using pneumatic ribs that were inserted into the torso. In a later scene, Quinn extracts a gelatinous frog-like egg from the carcass. The model was created in clear polyurethane with a latex dragon embryo inside. Richard Hoover, the Secret Lab's visual effects supervisor, commented overall on the project, in the light of it being one of the Secret Lab's last projects, quote, After doing this for so many years, I believe that if you feel a picture is going to be really difficult, then you have a better chance of doing something really special. And in this movie, I think we succeeded far beyond what I'd imagined, unquote. And I think that's the thing that I love the most about this movie, is that while it's not a perfect movie by any stretch of the imagination, the sheer skill and thought and dedication that went into the design of these creatures is just purely evident on screen. And surely it's about time that dragons had their cinematic renaissance. A bit like Matthew McConaughey, actually, with his. And also, if we're going to talk about renaissances, we kind of can segue very nicely into the obligatory Keanu reference for this episode. And what that is, is that's where I try and link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves for no reason other than he is the best of men. Because like Keanu, Matthew McConaughey has had somewhat of a renaissance in Hollywood, the McConaissance. Wiktionary actually references the Keanu-sense in the same vein as the McConaissance. And they both have the same description as a proper noun, which is the period of rejuvenation of actor Keanu Reeves' popularity and acting career since the 2010s and the period of rejuvenation of actor Matthew McConaughey's popularity and acting career in the 2010s, arguably. And maybe I'm a little bit biased, but I think Keanu is a little bit more beloved by the fans and just more wholesome, generally, than maybe Matthew McConaughey is. I'm not knocking the McConaissance at all. And unfortunately, Reign of Fire didn't start the McConaissance. It happened a few years after Reign of Fire. Reign of Fire was released on the 12th of July 2002, would open third in the weekly box office against Men in Black 2 and Road to Perdition, which came out the same week. Road to Perdition would continue to fare well at the box office, but Reign of Fire's reign would come to a swift end. In its second week, it dropped to sixth. In its third week, it dropped to eighth before dropping out of the top 10 altogether by its fourth week. And as I mentioned, this movie was made on a $60 million budget, which is incredible considering what we see on screen. There is no chance this movie would be made today with a similar budget, not only because inflation, but also the trajectory and rise of the careers of Christian Bale, Matthew McConaughey and Gerard Butler would basically mean that their salaries probably would cost $60 million combined on their own. But on a $60 million budget, this movie would gross $43.1 million domestically in the US and $39.1 million internationally for a total worldwide gross of $82.2 million, meaning that technically this movie was a bit of a box office flop. And critics did praise its effects, but basically denounced its script as derivative. But in the last few years, it's become somewhat of a cult classic and seems to have had its own reign of fire and naissance. That's what I'm calling it. It's a thing. It's real. The reign of fire and naissance is here. 
and it's happening. And it's mainly been fueled by the internet. Because internet forums at the time were ablaze, see what I did there, with claims of a sequel to Reign of Fire, but neither Rob Bowman nor Matt Greenberg actually confirmed it at the time, and a Reign of Fire sequel obviously never materialised. There was a rather mediocre video game adaptation and an unrealised TV series as well, but the fans have really kept the Reign of Fireverse very much alive, not only through social media, where cult favourites and obscure movies suddenly have an online fandom, but also through subreddits that speculate on potential prequels and additionally customised scale replicas of the character of Van Zandt still fetch hundreds if not thousands of dollars on auction sites. So while Reign of Fire is very much a one and done as it pertains to this particular franchise, its legacy really does live on, but in other movies and in other franchises. Social media thoughts are back for this episode, so let's go into them. I ask on Patreon, I ask across social media what people think of the movies that I'm featuring. We're going to start with the patrons and we're going to start with Brett who says, Reign of Fire is a dark dragon story we had never seen before. McConaughey is unhinged, which he can do so well, while Bell gives a performance similar to what he would give us as Bruce Wayne slash Batman a few years later. The mechanics of the dragons are very creative as the effects for them are top tier for an early 2000s movie. A fun ride that makes you feel dirty once it's over. We covered this movie back on our 43rd episode and it was a blast to discuss. And Brett's obviously talking about his podcast, Dissect That Film. Obviously, please go and have a listen to their 43rd episode on Reign of Fire. And they basically do exactly what it says on the tin. They dissect and review movies every week. They do movie retrospectives, new releases and TV shows. I'll put some information in the show notes for Dissect That Film. We have another patron comment from Scott who says, Having revisited this recently, accompanied by a magnificent human and some first-class burgers, that magnificent human is me, of course, my opinion on Reign of Fire has grown in this time round. With the expectations of the big dragon mayhem the trailers promised that the film didn't really deliver, it's actually a really effective adventure film. The effects really hold up after 20-odd years, with a great blend of practical and CGI as excellent production design. McConaughey's performance also gives us a glimpse into the actor he would develop into in the future. And of course, I bought this film on Blu-ray. And of course, I had to invite Scott to come around and watch it with me. And yeah, we had a great time watching this movie. And I'm going to give a little plug to his podcast. To be fair, they haven't released an episode in a long time. But the episodes that they do have on Monkey See, Monkey View, they're so lovely. And Scott's a wonderful human being. So I'm going to put some information in the show notes for Monkey See, Monkey Review. Have a listen. And if you love Scott as much as I love Scott, then you'll know why I invite Scott round to my house to watch movies with me, because he's a wonderful human being. We have another patron comment from Brendan, who says, Another delightful example of what it says from the tin in movie form. Reign of Fire earns a place in apocalyptic fiction for getting there before or became in vogue and for using a more interesting than usual end of the world catalyst than most. The dragons may be billed as the real stars as little as they show up until Act 3. But it's also a game showcase of Christian Bale, Matthew McConaughey, Isabella Skorupko and a young Gerard Butler, all bringing exactly the right tone and commitment to proceedings. Reign of Fire feels like a movie that could have been made 20 years earlier or 20 years later, but it wouldn't have resulted in the unique cocktail that has lived so long past its assumed shelf life. Not a great film, but a genuine genre delight. And the final patron comment comes from Nicholas, who says, It balances being ultra cheesy with really cool. The dragon action is good and still holds up visually. 
Also nice to see a blockbuster set in the UK, well, what's left of it after the dragons? Moving over to Twitter, we're going to start with at and why not pod, who said, Such a fun movie with great lead performances from Bale and especially McConaughey. Side note, but I love the kids' reactions when Bale and Butler performing Empire Strikes Back for them. At Wheel of Car said, I always thought this movie was a ton of fun. Been a while since I've watched it, though. At Movies Missed Pod said, I enjoyed it. Saw it in theatres. I have a poster signed by the director. Wouldn't mind revisiting again. It's been a while. At Nobody Asked For Pod said, Rewatched it recently and it holds up a lot better than I thought it would. Definitely a world I want us to explore more. At the Cat Film Fan said, Matthew McConaughey flying through the air with an axe to slay a dragon is amazing. At ZCH underscore BSTRD said, One of the two films I've walked out on at the movies. Worth a rewatch? To which I would say, yes. At Neil Burt said, I think it's an extremely overlooked film. The aesthetic and universe are fantastic. Need to rewatch it to see if the effects hold up. In my mind they do, but it's been a long time since I've seen it. The kind of movie we don't get these days. I'm aware it has flaws, haha. At Pittsburgh Nerd said, This is a very underrated movie. A hidden gem, if you will. It's not perfect, but it's really good, and I highly recommend this to anyone. At Shoot the Flick said, I actually really enjoyed this movie. I haven't seen it in years, so I'm sure there are issues I didn't see as a teen. At HSCPT Crash said, I watched this just for Alexander Siddig's appearance. I remember loving it especially the showing Star Wars to the kids. At Bearded Rhino 15 said, Extremely underrated film. I recall first seeing the trailer and being hooked from the get-go. A must-see for every film fan at least once. At Eric underscore of underscore Arkham said, It's an apocalypse with dragons. It may not live up to the potential of that idea, but it's still an apocalypse with dragons. And at Paul Alexandria said, It's okay, but the poster was misleading was expecting a present-day setting with dragons fighting the Air Force. No comments over on Instagram, but we do have one comment on Facebook, and that comment is from Zach, who says, I remember there were dragons, helicopters, and an extremely short life expectancy for the dragon slayers. This may require a rewatch at some point. And to anyone who wants to rewatch this movie, I would say absolutely yes, rewatch this movie, because this movie is so much fun to rewatch, especially 20 years later. Because it genuinely does look fantastic and it kind of will blow your mind a little bit as to how good this movie still looks. Thank you to everyone for your comments on Reign of Fire. And if you want your comments read out in episodes, then the thoughts posts, they go up on social media. You can find me at Verbal Diorama, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, etc, etc. I'm at Verbal Diorama everywhere. And on the thoughts posts that go up on a Friday, just comment your thoughts and I will read them in the episode and I will also credit you for your comment as well. This movie being set in 2020, despite what the original trailer may make you believe, because the original trailer says 2084, but it is set in 2020. And that really is the icing on the cake post-2020, post-COVID, because of course 2020 was the dragon-filled apocalyptic hellhole of our dreams. And it's going to be one of those things that every single movie that's set in 2020 now will always be the multiverse version of what we actually did get with COVID. Christian Bale perfectly demonstrates the Batman that he would become with his aloof, tormented, haunted leader, Quinn, with small moments of brevity, like when he and Gerard Butler are acting out The Empire Strikes Back for a group of very bewildered but very cute children. 
there's a child in front in particular who is basically a gasp for the whole of the performance and it's so wonderful to see these little child actors really overacting for this moment and I love it. It's the perfect antithesis to Matthew McConaughey's cartoonish American hero Denton Van Zandt, the guy who will jump with an axe to kill a dragon and make that ultimate sacrifice. These dragons feature many cutting-edge technological advancements, actual scales on the dragon, not just texture maps, incredible muscle and skin systems, fluid dynamics that let the dragon's wings genuinely stir the smoky air as they flap, and for the first time ever, computer-generated fire that appears to be completely real. The work by The Secret Lab on this movie is truly a testament to hard work, skill and dedication. The fact that Disney closed the studio is probably one of the worst decisions it has ever made. Many of the talent on this movie went on to work on The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers and The Matrix sequels. But there was a flammable, see what I did there, mix of talent that knew how to make CG not look like CG. The Secret Lab could have very well become Disney's version of Weta Digital if they'd only given it the chance to be their version of Weta Digital. Truly awful movies have bombed at the box office. Truly awful movies have made a billion dollars at the box office. Reign of Fire has its flaws, but it truly did not deserve to suffer like it did. In a cinematic multiverse where movies like this just aren't being made, it's inevitable that we would look back to when they were, and when they were made for $60 million, and when they starred future Oscar-winning actors who weren't afraid to chew the scenery. Reign of Fire is well worth a rewatch if you haven't seen it for a while. When I announced I was doing it, the reaction was so overwhelmingly positive, I wondered why I hadn't done it sooner. Time has been kind to Reign of Fire. People love it not for being perfect, but for imperfections. And giving us the muted greys and blues with pops of orange, the standard for movies going forward. Seriously, check out movie posters with blue and orange now. It's like the de facto colour scheme for everyone. And it started with Reign of Fire. That may not be true, but I like to think it did. Matt Greenberg is fully aware of the everlasting legacy of Reign of Fire. Quote, Of all the movies I've worked on, that has been the one that people keep talking about. What the director was able to do, what the actors were able to do, everything. They did touch on this mythic sense that can last through time. And I don't mean to sound grandiose. I think the reason movies or really any work of art lasts is because human beings are all tuning forks and occasionally something comes along, pings and makes you ring even years later, unquote. Basically, dragons in media, the ones from Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1, Gods of Egypt and Game of Thrones, took the mechanisms used in this movie and ran with them. Dragons would not be like this without Reign of Fire. So the next time someone asks you why they should care about Disney's dinosaur or 102 Dalmatians, you can respond, well, they gave us dragons and they were awesome. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Reign of Fire. And thank you for listening. By listening to this podcast, you are helping it grow. And I'm incredibly grateful for your ears for this episode. But if you do want to help a little bit more, you can do so for free by leaving a rating or review wherever you found this podcast. You can also retweet or like posts on social media. I am at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Letterboxd. Or the simplest thing you can do is you can tell a friend or a family member about this podcast. You could help them download this podcast, download episodes. That would obviously also be a very big help. And if you like this episode on Rain of Fire specifically, you might also like the following movies slash episodes of this podcast. I'm going to go for the big guns because if you're going to go for Rain of Fire, why not recommend the big guns? The ones that everyone's already seen, but maybe they've not heard the episode that I've done on the movie. 
episode 57, Jurassic Park, because it's Jurassic Park. Episode 106 that I did on Jaws, because, again, Jaws, it's phenomenal. And I just sort of top it off with episode 114 on Aliens. And I, I love that movie so much. Jurassic Park, Jaws and Aliens, they are the trifecta of monster movies, basically. So if you like Reign of Fire, you're going to love all of those. And if you love all of those, I think you're going to love Reign of Fire. Because while it might not be as much of a landmark of cinema as Jurassic Park, Jaws or Aliens was, you can see the passion and the fire, excuse the pun, on screen with the creatives behind the scenes on this movie. And you've got to really love that. You've got to admire that. Anyone can watch Reign of Fire and really genuinely see what they were trying to accomplish. And that is well worth two hours of your time, less than two hours of your time, actually. Obviously, give me feedback on my recommendations. Did I get it right? Of course I did. It's Jurassic Park, Jaws and Aliens. That's never going to be wrong. But let me know what you think on social media anyway. Next episode. So I wanted to do an episode on a specific movie. And then I wanted to do an episode on a similar movie made by the same people that came out prior to that movie. And so I thought, well, I'll do a double episode. I've done double episodes in the past for sequels. For example, Prometheus and Alien Covenant, I did an episode on. But technically, these movies are not connected in any way other than the creative team behind them. Man, I love these movies so much. So I'm going to do a joint episode on two Lonely Island movies. The incredibly underrated, both of them actually, Hot Rod and pop star Never Stop, Never Stop It. Uh, just to let you know, my safe word will be whiskey. And I'm a huge fan of the Style Boys. And when Connor for Real had his solo career, it just wasn't the same. Just so you know, I am the finest girl. That's all I'm going to say. Obviously, you can support this podcast for free. This podcast is free and it always will be free. But if you do want to help support this podcast financially, you can at verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon. Huge thank you to the amazing patrons of Verbal Diorama. Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Fern, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Ian, Lisa, Sam, Will, Jack, Dave, Chris, Stuart, Sonny, Drew, Nicholas, Zoe, Kev, Pete, Heather, Danny, Ali, Toilet, Stu, Brett, and Philip. Literally, my heart ignites with intensely hot dragon flame whenever I think of the amazing patrons of this podcast and how they support this podcast. Thank you so much. I have a merch store. It's verbaldiorama.com slash merch. You can also get in touch with me, verbaldiorama at gmail.com. You can send me an email. Remember email? Uh, you can say hi. You can give me feedback. You can give me suggestions. Or you can go to my website, verbaldiorama.com. You can also find my work at filmstories.co.uk. I write in the magazine for film stories. And I also write articles for the website as well. And finally... Dum 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 dum. Bye.